who, who said I don't like the topic? No, no, seriously, who? Because I have a disagreement with that guy. Who's that? That the guy who, who said I don't like the topic. White powder! White powder! <laughs> is what you find in D.W. Griffith's cabinet of medicine. Welcome to the Flick You're kind of a sport already. What, what is to, today's film? Yeah. <clears throat> so, welcome to one of the most influential directors of his generation. D.W. Griffith's masterpiece, The Birth of a Nation. Oh, so... All right, we have opinions like Woodrow Wilson, the president at the time, who said that it's like writing history with lightning, quote. <laughs> so, damn, of course, this is a heavily problematic film, made in 1915, uh, today known as the most racist film ever made in the Americas, at least. Of course, it was not viewed as such at its time. Well, it was, but not as much, much it, it as today. It kind of was, and it kind of wasn't. Right? Of course, there was the NWACP, which was supporting the black populace and trying to ban outright this film and not permitting it being seen anywhere in its premieres around the United States. And the attempts were, as far as I know, largely unsuccessful. That they managed to shut it down was it in one or two cities. Mm. That that was about the extent of of you know the the uh, that's about the extent of, of the successfulness of that boycott. Absolutely, and this is this is based on a Ku Klux Klan book. Mm-hmm. It's a tr- yeah, the second book in a trilogy. Mm-hmm. It, it aims to tell you exactly how great thing Ku Klux Klan is. Yeah. It's aiming to tell you how noble the first iteration of the Ku Klux Klan was compared to now. Now, now, of course, now, of course, it has nothing to do with what it was at the time. Noble at the time, not so noble now. For some reason, Dixon, the writer of the book, Thomas Dixon, and his good buddy D.W. Griffith, the director, they were not supportive of the current iteration of the Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan that actually rose... Probably partly because of this film, it's not quite clear, but uh, it was either after the aftermath of, following the aftermath of the First World War and or the birth of a nation. Quite o- o- often the, the rise of the second iteration, or a- at least a large chunk of of the re- responsibility is credited to the birth of a nation. Yeah, and that's easy to see because at the time... Movies had way more influence than they have today, at least in a sense that you could easily tell a different kind of a version of historical, well, facts, with air quotation marks. And nowadays we can do a little bit more fact-checking online, but at the time this was kind of like a some kind of a Bible for some people, and uh, something that the Ku Klux Klan New Edition 
really believed in that that was the historical facts that are presented yeah, in the I, film. I, I don't know if anyone believed that what's depicted here is is historical facts, even even back in the day. Right? Partly when, when it you, is. Mm. Be, uh, like pretty much the entire content when it comes to how things went went in the south and and the whole freemen situation it's it's pretty obviously a work of fiction yeah like, it's uh, true simply uh, when you, when you look at it and i somehow i i fail to believe that even the contemporary audiences back in the day would have actually found found it as any kind of a historical representation what what the film shows you i'm Pretty certain that everybody in their goddamn nuggets knew that what they are looking at is fiction. What might have actually worked or, or contributed to the fact that the film had such of a big, big, big influence back in the day was the fact that the the ideas and the ideologies and and the, the overall hatred that is depicted in the film was still quite the com- quite commonplace. In in 1950s America, this this was still a good 40 years before Rosa Parks and and the bus boycotts and all of that. This was the film was released in what was very strongly the segregationist era of of American history. If you ask Woodrow Wilson, the president once again at the time, basically he said that this film is the histori- historical representation at, at it's historically accurate. So. I don't think he was alone with those thoughts. And then again, Woodrow Wilson also was was friends, if I remember correctly, with Dixon. And also Woodrow Wilson himself was kind of aloof and, at least at times, a raging racist himself. Yeah, he was known as kind of openly racist character. But yeah, it's, po- it's kind of hard to, to say, go and say for certain 100% like, how how often Wilson was was, was racist, but or, or was being racist, but yeah, that the dude did write the whole history of American people, which in itself already has some pretty troubling pages and quotations. Later, of course, yeah, Woodrow Wilson had to kind of backtrack in his words, and he he told that he basically had to deny what he had said before. About the about the lightning and how a- accurate it is in its representation. It's kind of a, like a proto-Trump in that sense. Yeah, could be, could be. Well, when was the first time that you have seen the birth of a nation? It it was in a gentleman's meeting. Where let's not go in any more detail. <laughs> we 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 had theories about race in that meeting. Uh, now, in in all seriousness, Birth of a Nation is is a film that I actually took quite a long time before I I actually saw it. Like I I have I was aware of the film and I knew about the film like good ten years before I eventually checked it out myself. Probably not something that you saw on TV. No, this this was something that I actually had to look look out uh, or something that I had to share search for. Before I was able able to see the film, and at the same time, it was kind of a it, it was kind of an obligation, or at least I thought it was back in the day that as a as a cinebuff, I I just have to at some point watch the birth of, birth of a nation because of its 
it, it's kind of a the, the fame that it has, the, the legacy and the reputation of it being being somehow a groundbreaking, albeit a rather troubling movie. Yeah, funny thing that being such of a big deal at its time, such of a big blockbuster that you just can't see it on TV somehow. Well, I I, I guess that's simply because the the Vogue culture has been suppressing the white art for God know how many decades now. Hmm. I might I, I myself bl- blame the Chinese for this and the introduction of soy into our food culture. <laughs> Often for what this film is being credited is its technological or artistic merits, artistic firsts, firsts even, which is not even quite true. If we we're talking about... If we're talking about close-ups, for that matter, that can be often attributed to George Albert Smith, who did the, well, albeit 30-second film, but still a sick kitten from 1903. He had a close-up of a kitten there. And uh, sure, we had seen close-ups before. Then there's the attribution of the switchback, or so-called cross-cutting, which had also been done, for example, the likes of Edwin S. Porter. And he is kind of often considered to be the innovator there. For example, Life of an American Fireman, also from 1903. So you have an inter- interior shot, and you continue that with the ex- exterior shot, for example, like it does in there in the burning house. And he also didn't, didn't invent the feature film, that's for sure. That was done around Europe already. So yeah. Yeah, and that what you just said there is precisely the reason. O- outside of, of course, the racial facts, and 100% true race theory that we are dealing here today. But, but you know, what you said there is, is the reason why I wanted, wanted to actually cover the birth of a nation. Because, like you mentioned, the, the story around the film goes that, that Griffith innovated and created many of, of, of the cinematic techniques that are kind of a commonplace today. Like, this is an argument that is being brought up repeatedly. I've even even been on a university lecture where the, where the professor or, or the grad researcher who was giving giving us the lecture mentioned this as mentioned the birth of a nation as kind of kind of a birthing place of all, all these 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 engineering features in, in cinema. And <laughs> the fact is, like you mentioned, that that the legacy mostly does not hold true in in Griffith's case like if if you take the most common most common claims about what the birth of a nation supposedly innovated and created and then make a bullet point list of it uh, list of them and then then go through that list bullet point by bullet point you can actually debunk the entire goddamn list yeah of course if your argument is to be that <clears throat> this is the first film that got all these techniques under the same roof and then introduced it for a large crowd because of its A, big budget, and B, just, you know, with big budget comes the more grandiose nature of it all, more more visibility for this film. Then in, in that sense, it probably was the first. Yeah, um, what per- the birth of a nation might be first off, it, it, it can possibly be a film that, that, like you said, for, uh, for the first time actually brought all those all those technical elements into a one picture. Yeah. 
but that's about that's about the the you know the length of that. And some, something that is actually quite quite funny, since you gave already the examples of of you know the, the debunking examples of of mo- kind of the heaviest of the claims, the switchback and and the close up. The actually the funniest part when it comes to those is that you can actually find a previous examples of those techniques being used also from Griffith's <laughs> yes. own filmography. Yes. Like, yeah, like, like for example, the close-up was used already by Griffith himself in the Lone Dale Operator in 1911, and there is the proto close-up in the Musketeers of Big Alley, where it's it's not a real close-up in in the sense that the film it's uh, the camera itself doesn't doesn't come any more clo- any closer, but the, but kind of a proto in the sense that the actor himself moves it. To a close-up distance in front of the camera, and you kind of get the exact same cinematic effect still. And also, the switchback or the cross-cutting, as it's known today, Griffith also used that technique already in in the quarter in Weed in 1909. So Griffith, when it comes to Battle of the Nation, Griffith, Griffith is kind of being credited in inventing the cinematic techniques that he has. Well, maybe he even invented them, but he invented them way back when. Yeah, and then when it comes to close-ups, this is not even at all heavy on close-ups. Actually, there is very little amount of close-ups. I mean, it mostly consists of full shots and medium shots from what I was watching when viewing it. So, so, And what could be something that was one of the first things here to see is that there's a lot of movement in the camera for example following the Ku Klux Klan horse rides and there's obviously some kind of an automobile or such that is that from which they are filming it and yeah I don't know if it's if it was seen for the first time here but uh, there's that and then there are the fade-ins and and then opening to to directly to a new frame yeah also, techniques that Griffith himself didn't invent. I don't know when it comes to the tracking shot using a car. If if that's that per, perhaps a, a, a first here, maybe hard to say. But but fade out and fade ins also have been used in in silent films many times before the birth of a nation. And something to to really to rub the insult or, or salt even more to the wound. Something that I, I would say to any Finn w- would be the mo- most shameful and and become most insulting would be to lose to the Swedes somehow. And when it comes to Birth of a Nation, Griffith also loses to the to Swedes because e- even the Swedes actually managed to use all, all most if not all of Griffith's techniques already, and at least in 1913 with Ingeborg Hall. Which knowing that one of the innovations that that the rumor says the birth of a nation introduced was restrained expression and nuanced acting, and Ingeborg Holm actually manages to beat the birth of a nation even on those regards. Yeah, this was also the first film to be shown at the White House, thanks to the racist president Woodrow Wilson once again. So, yeah, but but once again, once again, you you have to be extremely careful with with, with the details and the wording 
because like, like, like mentioned, it's the first film to be shown in White House. Mm-hmm. The previous films have been outdoor presentations. So, so yeah. that that's that's also when it comes to being first at the White House. It it was first indoors presentation at the White House. Oh really? Oh really? Okay, I stand corrected. No, 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 no. It, it's basically the claim, claim itself is is still true in White House. Okay. Emphasis on in. <laughs> Not on the front lawn of the White House. <laughs> no, because, because the previous presentation was on the lawn of the White House. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So, sounds like someone has been using some kind of a marketing language and trying to put, put his, do his best to make this sound more grandiose than it is. And that actually might be something that Griffith really was first. Marketing and hype. Because this film most definitely was marketed and hyped from, from you know, to the heavens above by Griffith himself. There, there was lavish marketing campaigns abuse around the film. The, the screenings of the film itself were kind of a built as a marketing stunt. There were lavish screenings and, and the 12 page brochure that you got with you after you left the, left the screening and I, I would credit to much of the the legacy of the Bird of Nation or, or or the uh, or, or the story around the film like like the the whole notion how how innovative this movie was is supposed to be I'm actually crediting that more than anything to Griffith's marketing tactics. Griffith, who was not really swimming in money when he was making this, and also got into such of a trouble that he was not able to provide for for the Thomas Dixon his payment of ten thousand dollars for this, and instead he offered was it two thousand dollars plus twenty five percent of the earnings of the film, which of course made him a very very uh, wealthy man after the release of the film. Uh, also, following the, the whole narrative. Griffith has misunderstood genius or innovated and God forbid if not even created cinema and camera and film and everything himself. Well, there, there is also the continuation of, of the story from The Birth of a Nation, which kind of then immediately is the downfall of Griffith himself. It's almost like already the contem- contemporary audiences back in the day at some point realized that the, the Griffith that had been sold to them and and the kind of a innovative film that they uh, that was claimed that they had seen really didn't exist and that's something that that might have uh, or i believe might have come and bite griffith in the ass when it came to his second film or the follow up film intolerance which back in the day actually was a financial catastrophe to a griffith to a point where it kind of ended Griffith's career. Not in the sense that Griffith wouldn't be able to work work in film following Intolerance. Griffith was able to to keep keep on directing movies to the end of end of his career, but it did ruin Griffith in the sense that every the the films following Intolerance were no longer 100% his productions. He more or less to make it, to get his films financed he had to make deals with the financiers and and he became he lost the autonomy that he had enjoyed previously and became more or less just a director for hire yeah 
There are so many things to cover here that I think we could uh, sit here for 10 hours, but I don't know about you. We could go into the scene by scene while we are doing all of this, unless you have a pressing engagement to snort white powder with D.W. Griffith's ghost. <laughs> Uh, seeing exactly how goddamn long the film itself is, I, I guess we should A, snort powder, and then B, quickly get to scene by scene. Sounds good. So the film starts actually with something that was not there in the first place. It's a plea for the art of the motion picture. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I can't help laughing. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, the, the film is kind of, kind of a, or a, a, at least the modern version of, of the film, the, the yeah. DVD, Blu-ray copy that you, you can purchase. It's oh, oh, it, it's already it starts on kind of a loose footing because of the police and and basically the Griffith statements when it comes to covering his own film. Yeah, this is a really weak, some kind of a damage control. Please don't hurt us. For re-releasing this film in 1921, when they included this little plea for the for a plea for the art of the motion picture, which yeah, da- damage control being the also in my opinion the key word when it comes to the added the added text boxes in this film. Yeah, yeah, it says we do not fear censorship, for we have no wish to offend the improper improprieties or obscenities but we do demand us the right to liberty show the dark side of wrong that we may illuminate the bright side of virtue the same liberty that is conceded to the art of written word that art to which we owe the bible and the works of shakespeare which is also funny seeing how how both bible and and shakespeare's plays also are work of fiction (laughs) and and not, not a historical accord just in case that Griffith himself might not be upon the uptake when it comes to Bible. There's also the problem when you see these these title cards uh, throughout the film that sometimes it has the text that well, what was it in the right lower corner? You have this that this is trying to be the or is in fact the perfect accurate description or reenactment of what happened back then. And the problem only is that. I don't know if this carries to the second half of the film when it gets extremely out of control and fictional as hell, but having those title cards in the first part of the film, first half of the film, and then carrying on with the second half of the film, that anyway tells or communicates to the audience that you're supposed to kind of believe everything that is here. It is. It is the the facsimiles that that are added in, in, in the lower end of the title cards. Uh, if I remember correctly, they mostly they are they are just a problem of the first half of the film, and they are mostly Griffith simply patting himself on the back for the fact that he has been a- able to to reconstruct the sets. Facsimiles they sure sure do actually get pretty tiresome as the fi- as the first act goes on, and and you just you know it, it it's a title card with them. Uh, followed by another title card with them, and it starts to act pretty much already smell like Griffith. It's, it's just begging for you to actually pay notice to to how close to a, the real theater hall this the our set is. Yeah, yeah, facsimile is kind of a big word to use. Like we, it's basically suggesting that we did we did a carbon copy of what happened back then. It's like basically saying. I was there shooting this film when Lincoln was shot in the head. So, no, no, you you weren't there. 
especially seeing how in in those scenes you also use completely fictional and made up characters. Right, right. Like like the like the, for example the the Lincoln suicide. But facsimiles aside, we have in the opening titles also this way that the titles were made in the at the, at its time. This is also something that you have in in Gone with the Wind. For example, you have the character name of Laura Cameron, and it's always followed, comma, the pet sister, or Margaret Cameron, elder sister. Like, I, I think it's kind of cute, or st- stupid, because it gets sometimes really hard, hard to follow anyway. You have one name of some dude there, and then below it's like, his sister, her sister, their granddaughter, their aunt's granddaughter, their grandma's daughter's aunt's dog, or something. Who cares? Okay, got carried away there. Also, it says, if in this work we have conveyed to the mind the ravages of war to the end that war may be held in abhorrence, this effort will not have been in vain. And once again, this doesn't have anything to do with the problems of the film itself, which is kind of an odd addition. Yeah, I'm. I my, my take on that title card was that it it once again it's 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 kind of a, it's preemptive damage control for basically what what follows. Oh, my take on, on the title card is that it's it's a damage control for the depiction of the political characters and preemptive damage control for what follows in the second half of the film. Mm. Followed by the bringing of the Af- African to America planet, the first seed of disunion, starting with the Great Footing. I suppose this is in the also from the original. Speaking of the original, Henrik, there were a couple or even more scenes that were cut from the film for the re-release of the film. And all of those scenes are, if not lost, they are buried in some kind of archive and have not been seen for over a hundred years, as far as far as I know. So yeah, Melvin Stokes, one professor who is knowledgeable in the film, he says that in the Library of Congress there's actually seven thousand feet of film from the original 1915 version, and no one has seen the material until to this day, and it is apparently all material that was cut from the 21 reissue of the film that we have today, and. A lot of famous sequences were cut, and Stokes wonders if there's also the material included in there of some key scenes that were problematic. For example, there could be a scene where the black guy Gus is castrated, yes, castrated, and some have also argued that the musical score includes uh, the part of the castration in its current form. So that's, that's kind of a remnant from those times. And another scene concerns one where there's like an anti-slavery meeting and there's a small boy who who is black and he's pushed towards a rather overdressed white woman and who makes kind of a disgusted gesture suggesting that the boy would smell foul that's it yeah because making the notion that black people smell most definitely would be too troubling for the film uh, those were the cuts made okay we open the first shot with Something. There's a guy in a dress and a black guy bowing before him. Yeah, the, the first shot, of, uh, the, the opening shot of the film is is to depict kind of, kind of the the slaves coming to America, like like the birthing place or, or the first moments of the slave trade and slavery in America. Mm. And then there is some courtroom material where a young boy is being taken forward. Yeah, it's, it's supposed to follow from those that the glory days, the good, honest, and pure days of the past. 
in the uh, kind of a corrupted and tarnished modern day of people are kind of uh, demanding the freeing of the slaves. And one of the most important title cards of the entire film is here when we are discussing the one of the lead characters of the film. So in 1860, a great parliamentary leader whom we, whom we shall call Austin Stallman was rising to power in the National House of Representatives and we find him with his young daughter Elsie in her apartments in Washington. And this is one of the families that we are going to follow throughout this film. And we got inside the Stallman household. Yep, the, the film essentially revol- revolves around two families, the, the Stonemans and the Camerons. Yeah, uh, the Camerons ca- coming from the south and the Stonemans being the product of the north. And w- when it comes to the Stonemans, it's, the, the father is an up-and-coming rising politician, for, uh, political force in in United States especially for uh, after following the civil war and the Camerons are the good old honest down to earth southern gentlemen who also have a slave plantation but who cares about the little detail no 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 but now Elsie is with his uh, with her brothers the Stallman country home in Pennsylvania playing around they receive a letter and it's addressed to Ben and it says that the brothers are coming to see Ben on Friday. They're very much looking forward to this moment. Yeah, and this is kind of like the problems with the film proper starts, especially with the first half, which which is Ben and the Cameron brothers, and basically the fact that the whole whole that the first half revolves completely around them. Yeah, I sometimes have to wonder how the how the hell in the old days people were so. So, writing in such of a biased way, for example, this title card here. In the Southland, Piedmont, South Carolina, the home of the Camerons, where life runs in a quaintly way that is to be no more. Like, this is so ideologically pure, I can't believe. I would kind of uh, credit that, once again, partly, and, and I e- emphasis on partly, to the segregationist policies and segregationist viewpoints in, in America at the time. But more than that, I would actually credit that simply to Griffith himself. Now we're focused on Benny Cameron, the eldest son. But I have to say that it's really, as we discussed before we started recording, it's really hard to sometimes follow this film, what is happening here. Of course, this is really the early days of cinema, so the the the, the way that the story is told, the structure, the cinematography, everything is... Uh, a little bit in in the in progress still. Then again, you know, once again, outside of America, outside of Griffith, people had already solved this problem. People were already telling very carefully crafted and extremely obvious narratives in feature films. Like yeah, which yeah. once again, when it comes to you know being able to tell your narrative in in an understandable fashion. The Swedes, once again, beat Griffith to the punch. Ingeborg mm. Holm, which is much... Which story-wise and thematics-wise is, is kind of even harder to take in uh, or translate to the audience than, than the birth of a nation. Because uh, Ingeborg Holm, e- essentially, it's extremely personal and close drama about about a woman who, due, due to the fact that her husband dies of TP. Loses basically everything. Loses loses the house. Loses the business. Loses even her children. And 
the unification that in the end Ingapore is able to make with with her eldest son. That that's essentially the core core story of, of the film, and that already as a as a drama as a as a story you want to tell. It's much more delicate and therefore much more harder to convey to the audiences, especially in, in silent movie fashion. But Ingeborg Hall manages to pull this off. So yeah. I, I would mo- say that, that when it comes to the film being hard to follow, uh, it, it's more, more, than, more than the times and more than, more than the movie being a silent film. It, it simply comes down to the movie being filmed by Griffith. <laughs> Yeah, I was kind of looking for something more clear juxtaposition. Of course, these techniques were fine-tuned later very much. Like we were talking in in Parasite, how it was cinematographically differentiated, these two houses with different angles. I don't think it's going on here. The film is indeed based on the stories of these, these two families, which didn't really open up to me until way later, that this is kind of what they're trying to do here. One family, second family, and those are the integrals. Yeah, um, when it comes to the storylines of the film, the film, like, like, the problem is that the film has to, like, like two or three storylines going on, and they all basically intercut with, with these two families. There, there, there is the love story, which takes, unfortunately, the entire first half of the film, and then yeah. there is the... the political storyline which mostly revolves around Stoneman and his rise to power and how he uses the power and then there is the kind of a corruption of democracy which is what we mostly follow in the second half of the film. All three storylines are kind of carried over throughout uh, throughout the film that you you are shown some glimpses of the storylines two, two and three during the first half of the film, and then they rose to prominence in the second half. But it's it's kind of a jumbled mess in in the end or altogether. Like that, the film doesn't really do a balanced carrying carrying over of the all three story. But at the same time, have to give it to those those people at the time for the Swedes and for Griffith for being being able to pull off even such of a level of cohesity in storytelling and, and, and frame sizes and all that. Because, well, you would think that since cinematography for moving pictures had been available for like only 20 years at this point, you would think that all of the, the techniques that they would use in The Birth of a Nation would be even less impressive, way less impressive. So, uh, well, then again, these people are doing it for the money. They have to, even if they weren't completely conscious of every step of the way, how to frame things in as eye-pleasing way as possible for the audiences, it's getting a lot of things right already. Then again, even following the preceding The Birth of a Nation, Griffith himself also had already a pretty long-running film career. So Mm. Griffith himself also isn't isn't doing this for the first time here in, in Birth. Yeah, the crazy bastard has directed at least five hundred films, of course, of differing length. Most of them short films. That that he does. Griffith's filmography on its on its own is pretty remarkable. In the end, 
Here's new title guard, Margaret Cameron, a daughter of the South, trained in the matters of the old school. And we get inside the household. And at this point, they are once again going through the same goddamn letter, I believe. Uh, that there's or, or, or this, this is the response to the original letter. It's actually the same letter. I believe it's like this... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the two... I don't know. So the two brothers... Ah. So the two brothers are looking at the letter and then they send it. And then they look at it again when they have received it. I guess. Yeah, it's it's still kind of a mess to, to follow <laughs> that. But uh, then there's a cute shot of hostilities between... Well, actually, the only hostile entity, once again, is the cat towards the two puppy Yeah, dogs. no surprise there. Yeah. Henrik, do you prefer dogs or cats? Oh. Is that even a question? No. Yeah, I mean, especially following the uninvited. Which, in, 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 on its own right, it, it's pretty much a 100% accurate documentation of what cats are like. <laughs> yeah, for documentaries, go to that episode instead of this one. And then there is the word that is used that was actually, I would say it was a new one to me. Chums, the younger sons, north and south. Chums being the equivalent of a word for friends. I don't know. Uh, definitely not in use today. I I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I, I would actually say that it, it's still okay. at least on some capacity. Yeah. And then after having some shots at the house, we go to the plantation, which is close to the house. And then we go to... I go to Love Valley, and something happens there. There are the slaves working in the fields, and this guy from the Cameron family looking at flowers. Yeah, and two things to note already on this scene. The, the first one is is basically the su- southern apologist stand that one takes. And this is actually one of the reasons why I wanted to cover Perth so close to the Gone with the Wind episode, because... They, they, these days, both, both films share the kind of a same kind of a, a, a bit troubling legacy that they both are seen as, as Southern Apologist movies. Meaning movies that try to argue that the Southern Rebellion on its core was, was a doomed but noble effort, which was not about slavery. But in instead in in the states states rights to self govern over the government and therefore also individuals rights rights to kind of self govern contrast to the government and and the second argument that these films usually pull off is that the slavery itself wasn't that bad or bad or a deal and the slaves in the end were were actually treated rather nicely. By, by the plantation owners, and therefore, basically, and therefore, the whole "we must abolish slavery" stance that was taken in America back, back in the day was actually uncalled for, and mostly was just used as a political machinations of some upcoming politicians. And that is actually a point that already is presented in in the birth of a nation here on the plantation scene. Where the slaves once again are are being shown in what are pretty hospitable environments. The work days are not that long, and nobody is mistreated in any ways. And even the slaves themselves, goddammit, want 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 to be there. Now, what is with this podcast and slavery? Now we have Pocahontas, Sugarcane Alley, uh, the birth of a nation, and Gone with the Wind. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, and and that which we do not talk about. <laughs> I I don't know. I mean, when it, when it comes to the when it comes to the last two offenses on, on that regard, I I myself am to blame. We we are following my picks for, for the films here at at the podcast at this point. Yeah, I want to state it out clearly. These are Henrik's picks. Henrik's picks. <laughs> uh, but but other than that, I I don't know. We as a podcast, we have this unfortunate habit of <laughs> kind of ending up in rather troubling and hard situations here when when it comes to the us and movie. <laughs> like if, if it if it's not slavery, it's war crimes, and if it's not war crimes, it's rape, and if it's not rape, I don't even wanna guess what god awful abom- abomination it's in that case. Uh, a porn film, or well, well, porn actually was one of the nicest films and uh, thematic wise that we covered in this podcast. Or or trying to kind of a kind of a play with hot coals and. Uh... Do a film about the the church and homosexuality for Poland on, on their Independence Day. Mm. There, there we were ac- actually being the good guys. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that was a good deed. That that was a good deed. So, dear listeners, be, please remember that one good deed as you follow us now in the insidious <laughs> hate crimes and racism. Yeah, uh, the guy from the Cameron family finds his ideal girl in the picture of Elsie Stoneman. <laughs> Christ. And and maybe this is just me just lazily following the film, but once again I have no idea how the guy has gotten this picture, but there it is. The the origin of the picture is never explained. <laughs> ben simply <laughs> simply doinks the picture and Not creepy then <laughs> decides to keep it for himself because I, I guess Thievery also was was one of those old world values with, that we have now lost. Uh, but yeah, when when I said that the the love story storyline has problems, this kinda is my go-to example of that. The whole like the, 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 in the film there are two two love stories that we follow, and they they are both kind of a descending the the line between north and south. The southerner falls in love with a northern woman, and northerner falls in love with a southern woman. And yeah, yeah. and the problem that I have, or, 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 or the main problem that arises in my opinion when it comes to the love story aspect, is that the, the love or, or the kind of a formation of of that love and of that passion is never explained or studied the least. Especially in case of Ben, where it's simply the case of I saw a picture of of a of a lady, so now there is love and passion. Yeah, good old times. Good, good old times when you didn't even have to actually meet the lady you decided that you will marry someday, like in person. It, it was enough that you had seen a picture. Ah, oh, secondary things, you know. You, you can tell that she. It's able to do the dishes. Has two hands. Yup. It, 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 it's it's not so much about those little details in South. Uh, and then, of course, the storm is gathering to the peaceful perfection of the South. Because Lord Cornwallis has surrendered to the individual colonies in 1781. And now uh, the threat is on by the new administration. 
And uh, this, of course, means that uh, if the North carries the election, the South will secede and uh, war will follow. War, which, by the way, the South started. Yep, in a kind of, yep, or historically, yeah. But not if you actually ask, ask the Southerners themselves. Of course, who would do such a thing? Okay, we, of course, we have also seen this smiley black faces they're enjoying their slavery all the time and doing happy dancing for the white rich people amongst which we have also this fake black people there are so-called black faces among amongst the black people and the decision was made that the, the main actors of the film will be so-called black faces instead of real black people but there are some multiple reasons for this uh, first is of course the fact that the, who the hell would like to play one of these lead characters as a black person. Of course, obviously they were able to get some black extras here because money talks, or maybe they were not even... Maybe they were oblivious of what kind of a project they were involved in. Uh, nevertheless... I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that Griffith never actually told the type of film he's making. Simply asking, do what I appear in this one Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you could do that. And what kind of a legal protection would be for these black people who would want their self removed from the film? I'm guessing zero... But also, it wasn't until uh, 1927 when it was finally allowed for black people and white people to play on the same stage at the same time in the theater. So, many kind of challenges. But that, that uh, once again, also is, is one problematic element added on, on top of all, all the rest when it comes to the film. They mentioned the fact that for, for a film that is so much about the black uprising and the way how the quote, blacks, quotation marks, are, the, the, like, like you mentioned, most of the black characters here are being portrayed by white actors in blackface. And it was, it was also made very obvious that they were just blackfaces, white people playing black people due to the fact that it would have been problematic if it were not done so, when there were white people in the same scene. We're, of course, introduced also to this uh, mulatto servant in the household of uh, the Stonemans, fake mulatto, or fake mixed-raced woman. Yeah, the maid character of of the film, which is is pretty prominent on the, on the first half of the movie, and then mysteriously disappears on, on during the second one. But in in the end, in in the film, essentially works as a character who does something. What that is is never actually explained. It's, uh, the film makes it incredibly clear, and and through this made character makes clear depiction of the blacks being conniving, treacherous, and hate in their actions. And that the film very much telegraphs to the audiences that that the mulatto maid of of Stone Man has some kind of ulterior motives, like she's trying to play some kind of a power game, on on top of trying to play her affections on, on Stone Man. But what what that kind of the end game is supposed to be, it's never actually explained in the movie, because the character herself disappears when, when the first act comes to a closure, or at the beginning of the second act. That is that kind of an artistic touch of Griffiths. But uh, the first call for 75,000 volunteers is happening 
President Lincoln signing the proclamation. And we have this historical facsimile where we see Lincoln for the first time at his desk. A desk apparently which is very open to regular people, which we will get later on. So what? no wonder the guy got shot, if this is the facsimile. <clears throat> but, but basically everybody just come and go and walk to Lincoln as, as they please. Right, it's like a public kitchen. Or something. Except when he goes to theater, then he has his bodyguard. Yeah, extremely talented bodyguard. What happened to the bodyguard? I'm not sure. But it's fair to assume that the guy was hanged or shot quite immediately. <laughs> of course, there are kisses exchanged because it's time to go to the front and everybody is so happy and waving their handkerchiefs. Goodbye, uh, this is the last time I see you for for the lost cause, as it's called. Yeah, and, and when, when you mentioned that everybody is going to the front, that for some odd reason also includes the Black soldiers who are joining Confederacy because reasons? Mm-hmm. Interesting times indeed. Uh, there, there are some uh, historical material that states that even some of the black people in their separate black people in their balconies when they were watching the film in the theaters, some of them were clapping for this film when it was supportive for the South, meaning like the Ku Klux Klan scenes or something like this. And when it comes to those those... There was, of course, the apartheid in South Africa. There were separate theaters for the blacks or this separate balcony that was called the N*** Heaven. Yeah. And many of these things didn't really change after the civil war was over. So, so much for, quote, equal rights, equal politics and equal marriage. No, uh, for, for the United States, when, uh, after the civil war, it actually took quite a long time to things settle down or, or you know or the racist policies to be abolished and some might even argue that it hasn't done properly even today like the work is still unfinished on, at least on, on on some remark right and i see that this movie is definitely making fun of the statements of the north when it was when the civil war had basically ended and there were these slogans for example 40 acres and a mule for every colorized citizen and um, this was part of the special field field orders number 15 it was kind of a post-civil war promise from the uh, union general willem tecumseh sherman on january 16 1865 but when lincoln had his successor the president andrew johnson he reversed everything and annulled everything of the orders of the number 15 and this never came to be so clearly poking at poking fun at that uh, poking fun is, is something that the film uh, kind of does constantaneously especially when it comes to the northern characters or historical figures the stone man character of the film it's, uh, he, himself is based on the Thaddeus Stevens who himself was a member of the United States House of Representatives back in the day. And now in the Stoneman facilities, there's this, uh, there's this one person, is it his brother, who is putting the Confederate flag on his sleeping sister. And then he starts, and she starts crying, supposedly because he's going to be in the war. And then there's some ball, and then the trumpet sounds, and uh, it's time to go. Some letters exchanged again, and of course now the 
kind of a quote an irregular force of the guerrillas raids the town at 37 minutes into the film and chaos ensues because the bad bad black people are here to destroy and ravage and rape and destroy and burn your little town sheriff chaos also ensues on on the audience's side because of the nuanced acting that the film allegedly somehow pioneered because when it comes to the rage scene and the camera woman when it comes to the female actors it's really hard actually actually to say are the characters supposed to be afraid appalled or simply you know excited about the fact that their house is being raided (laughs) yeah there's the chef one stoneman sister who I, I I genuinely thought something is wrong with her, like, <clears throat> not to make fun of anyone in such a situation, but uh, I, I thought she was mentally unstable or something, like, she was laughing when the house was on fire, <laughs> like, smiling. <laughs> yep, yep, and, that, and that's, th- that's pioneering the nuanced acting. <laughs> <laughs> and, um... Uh, yeah, this is one of the things that is also attributed to the film, that apparently it has more nuanced acting, or less pronounced uh, facial expressions, or m- more realistic acting, than if you will. Less theatrical. Also, what is said to be that this movie has pioneered is giving focus to certain parts of the frame by by blocking some of the frame with this, this, this black antimatter, which is also supposed to be some kind of a close-up when we are blocking part of the frame. An interesting technique of the time. Anyway, now at the front, uh, it's time to get a little bit of a brotherly moment when, uh, is it now the two brothers that die and cutely in in their arms, like resting. Yeah, with Griffith on the background screaming no homo. <laughs> because because there, there is some, there, there's some tender moments in, in that dying scene. Yeah, yeah. I definitely, There's some touching of the cheek. Yeah, okay. yeah, definitely the, the the way of the the director's approach to directing was different at the time because, well, if you wanted to record some of the original ambience sound, then the director had to shut up. But in this golden age silent film era, you can <laughs> do the shouting in the background all you want, and sometimes you can see it because the acting becomes so mechanical. Somebody might be turning, and then they. In your in their eyes, you can see that this didn't feel all natural. Yeah, it kind of gives you the impression that the actor was doing something, and then all of a sudden, in middle of action, he or she gets told to do something else, and she quickly tries to course correct in in mid action. Yeah, what about this color tints of the film? It's actually the original technique of the of the film where they wanted to color tint the films to make them distinguishable from each other i guess and that it, that it does it's a bit of a mess to follow so the color tinting might help it a tiny bit but to be to be honest i wish it really wasn't there <laughs> i prefer to look at my pure black and white i don't know uh, i've kind of come to like and even appreciate the color tints in in black and white films mm. I, I i know i i know it's a matter of preference and it really kind of doesn't in the end it doesn't really affect that strongly on the film one side or the another and there's and it's not really a necessary technique 
for black and white silent film to, to color tint your image. But, but, but for me, every now and then, when used in in spare when used sparingly, it, it kind of lets at least for me, it kind of lets me to to have an easier going with with a film, especially a long feature, because it it kind of breaks down. It, it gives me a break amidst the black and white footage. At forty seven fifty five. You have the title card, The Torch of War Against the Breast of Atlanta, The Bombardment and Flight. And that is followed by a frame where the town is on fire, and the people are on horses, and uh, people carrying their children, and uh, all chaos is loose. I have two versions of this film. In this version that I'm looking at now, this is some older digital print of the film, where the image has not really been stabilized and the material is not from the best possible sources. And uh, here the image is tinted red and in the background you see you see the city that is also on fire or the town. And if you look at the latest Blu-ray release of it, they did a fantastic uh, job with that. They were looking in the archives for the best possible source material of this film that exists, which was extremely painstaking by the way they had to go through reels where where many of the it was like it was not the completed print but it was original footage from the shootings and all of the materials seemed to be in random order so they had to go through everything and then just basically re-edit this entire film in place and when it comes to this particular shot uh, the stabilizing of the image is really clear because everything in the forefront stays in focus and uh, stay still but the background city is shaking like crazy telling you that these were of course separate elements that were put together Griffith Conover uses the split screen technique a couple of times in during birth uh, that's a bit distracting because in this shot it's perfectly something that could exist but then there are some shots where it's just split and you can see the seams and I'm not sure what he was trying to do there what was he trying to do like a Two split, three split type of thing. Like I don't know. I I, I don't know either. Uh, at, at times I, I I've taken that in in some scenes where where, where the technique is used. it's supposed to showcase you two characters in in the movie's real life or real world uh, uh, in in the forefront of the picture and then then through through the split kind of show you what they are thinking about. To visualize their mental image that they are having in, inside their heads at the moment, but that on that's only in some scene. When, when it comes to the others, like for example the burning of Atlanta, I really can't say what Griffith was aiming at because there it's made in at least in my opinion it's made in, it's made really cre- really clear to you that. You, what you are supposed to see is one con, uh, consistent image. Like, the, the city is supposed to burn at the background of the image. So it, it can't be any kind of a me- presentation of, of, a, of an idea, of a mental image on, on that regard. Yeah, for example, this one at roughly 49 minutes, there is one of those two splits that just doesn't seem realistic on any level. There is kind of a bright day, daylight uh, brightness on the on the lower part of the screen and then up you see like a town in flames during night and it's not split even very smoothly at all 
Yeah, so, something that that could be happening is is that Griffith mm, did it uh, did that intentionally. Like you were supposed to notice that mm. it's it's a, that it's two images. So so that Griffith once again could get one of those pioneering firsts under his belt, or at least a claim mm. for, for for the first split image in movie history. Of this, of course, not being the first time that silent films have split image. There are being previous examples of of split image image technique. For example, in in Louis Weber's film Suspense, which uses even more complex and even more betterly created split uh, split screening. Now, of course, this glorious Griffith title card TM is showing us quote the last gray days of the Confederacy on the battle lines before Petersburg. Parched corn, they're only Russians, end quote. So, uh, parched corn is something that is most likely coming directly from the experiences of Griffith himself when his family was extremely poor and he definitely got his fair share of parched corn. So if it's not coming from the book, it's coming from Griffith's experiences, for sure. And uh, they're waiting for the food train of the Confederates, but uh, it's misled into another direction, apparently on the tracks, so... There's an attack planned for saving the train. And here is where we get to one of these most bombastic, most hyped scenes of the film. You have Where you have like a long establishing shot showing you basically the both sides of the, of the trenches on the front lines. And th- those kind of large long takes that, that are used in d- during, during the, the Civil War fights might actually be something that that might be something where Griffith is ahead of 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 the business or of the scene. So, so to say, I don't really remember a previous pre- previous silent film that would precede the birth of a nation that would have actually used these long shots. Yeah, shots that actually also run for a very long time, but it looks pretty good at times. It's it's pretty good. That's one well one of the major problems when it comes to the film itself at, at least in my opinion the the film is the film has astonishing amount of shots that in my opinion actually run way too long to a point where the film itself actually becomes really boring yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also something that Griffith might have pioneered there's a lot of things he might have and many that he didn't but might have pioneered the way that he apparently did shoot a hell of a lot of material and then just pick the best parts out of that hell of a lot of material and put it together for the exciting three hours that it is. Whereas uh, I think people at the time were more generally more conservative in using the film and just using it where absolutely needed. Yep, which uh, in in return might actually lead into a more tight, more carefully constructed and most notably shorter film yeah and news of the death of their second son and of the eldest being near death in a washington hospital says the title card but this is the second time now that the family mother has gotten pretty crappy news so this time she doesn't even bother to go on the sofa to cry she's like well sad times i guess i have to go see my son to the hospital and elsie goes to the hospital now or actually, Elsie is working at the hospital and meets this one patient from the Camerons who is absolutely in love 
with Elsie. And then shows Elsie the picture of Elsie. And Elsie is like, hmm, well, that's cute. But Colonel Cameron has been sentenced to death to be hanged as a gorilla. But because Lincoln is the good buddy that he is, he generally invites Elsie and her mother to Lincoln's little, little room. And Lincoln orders that uh, this hanging is not to take place. Lincoln and how he is portrayed in this film is uh, rather interesting because he's portrayed as someone who is friendly towards the southerners but then of course as reality happens it's it's the southerners who who also kill Lincoln which starts the whole Ku Klux Klan and the new uprising yeah the the kind of a kind portrayal of of Lincoln altogether it's it's really rare to see in the southern apologist genre of films where Whereas Lincoln, pretty often in these type of movies, he's been depicted as a as a Satan himself. So I, I too, I was really surprised to to see that Griffith of all people and and the birth of a nation of all films actually has a has a largely humane and sympathetic depiction of Lincoln. Then there's a shot of a Appomattox courthouse in April April 1865 and. The title card next says that this is the end of state sovereignty. So the soul of Daniel Webster calling to America, quote, the liberty and union, one and inseparable now and forever. So the civil war has ended. This is what I quite didn't understand. One of the daughters of the family puts on this cotton, which is supposed to be, which is of course valuable. And then what do you do with that valuable stuff? You, you put some charcoal on it and you think that's pretty or what? There's a kind of a hundred year gap in understanding this. <laughs> it, it's very easy to understand, except the charcoal. <laughs> I guess whatever at your time was valuable, that, that is something that you are supposed to put on your clothes. <laughs> well, well uh, putting cotton on, on your clothes, that kind of still, that ac- actually makes sense. Does it? Well, well yeah, I mean, it, it's... It's it's meant to be or it's meant to work as an ornament or decoration mm. on on her gown. And goodness by goodness it is do it does actually manage to elevate the gown at least a bit. It like uh, with the added cotton, the gown does look more like what what they had previously. Highly decorated dresses. That the ladies wore before the were that the ladies were before the war. They had had to sell sell them all to to fund the war. And on that remark, that actually does make sense to me. What doesn't make to make sense is the goddamn charcoal. <laughs> There's a lot of historical dates that are mentioned in the title cards. One of them being April 14th, 1865, and it's mentioned as the the fated night of April 14th, 1865. And there's a lot of things that I had to fact check and and which felt a little overwhelming. You know, there's a big gap here time-wise and there's a big cultural gap. Things that we as Finns are not really learning in grade school or anything. But uh, <laughs> then I felt a little bit silly, of course, when checking this. Uh, that April 14, 1865, of course, is the, the day that uh, Lincoln was, was shot and... What, what, you you didn't get that from the film itself. I did get that, but when I posted that the title card, I was like, oh, what the hell is this? 
Let's. Uh, okay, okay. Good to know because for a moment I was getting worried. <laughs> <laughs> and we get to the gala performers, and uh, that's where uh, it uh, all went sideways because of one lazy bodyguard who just wanted to enjoy the show. Yeah, and, and the, the Lincoln assassination altogether in the film, it's I'm I'm kind of a baffled exactly how in detail the film goes on goes with, with the whole assassination with the title cards actually showing the time and what what act of the play is currently going on. Yeah, have you seen the Steven Spielberg film Lincoln? Uh, checked it out once when it came what was on TV. Yeah. I was kind of a, it's a movie and... <laughs> okay, that's that's it about that. Stonemans get the information about the assassination and how South is getting news of the assassination and it's apparently their best friend. What is to become of us now? I thought kind of a lot of things because shouldn't you be kind of exhilarated about this news? No, because in, in this film's universe, everybody in South was on Lincoln's side and nobody thought that Lincoln was a piece of shit and blamed him for the whole Civil War thing and South succeeded. Oh, well, it's good that we got it straight. Yep, yep. The, the, this is depiction of, of historical facts, as Griffith points out. Yeah, quote, this is an, an historical presentation of the Civil War and Reconstruction period. And it's not meant to reflect on any race or people of today. Which, okay. m- more than anything in this film, to me, smells like like damage control <laughs> done by Griffith. Yeah, it looks like a 1921 damage control title card. Because, yep. well, this doesn't help his case <laughs> anyway. <laughs> it doesn't help his case. <laughs> it, it all, mo- Most definitely, it doesn't help his case, especially here, because... This title card is presented at the end of the first half of the film. And from here on on, we go into the second half of the film, which, kudos for the film. The second half is way more interesting than the first half, but the second half also is more interesting simply because it's even more racist and even more harmful than the first one. Well, absolutely, and... uh... I can now see actually why Woodrow Wilson was so hyped about this film because it's quoting Woodrow Wilson in three of these title cards right here from the history of the American people. One one of them is underlined, quote, put the white south under the heel of the black south. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous. God damn it, Woodrow. <laughs> and and also also the, the notion that white men were roused by a mere instinct of self-preservation. And that was what what was what caused the existence of 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 Cook's clan. Yeah, focus is now getting back actually to the Silas Lynch, the mulatto leader of the blacks. Apparently, that's what she is in the Stallman family. And at the same time, many people have to are they are forced to recognize the mulatto's position and the black people's position. But of course, the the Cameron family doesn't take this lightly. There is a really what I can only describe myself as at least as a pretty hilarious shot where this this guy is getting very amped up about the fact that he would be he would need to shake hands with this mulatto and refuses to do so just a look on his face now we see here some of those those signs that say the equality equal rights equal politics equal marriage 40 acres and a mule for every colored citizen 
And the title card, quote, the charity of a generous north, misused to delude the ignorant, end quote. Well, I guess to Griffith's credits, he never said that this would be, uh, this would be a balanced interpretation. Except that they said this would be facts. Yeah, and in here they very clearly kind of mispresent what what the amenities to to the free men were. Like in, in Griffith's film, it, film it's been shown that the blacks were given an abundance of stuff, like more stuff than they could need, more stuff than he can even possibly carry and they were given like top hats and god knows what else by the government and now does it happen so that the northern stallmans are packing their shit and traveling to piedmont to their buddies camerons something like that it's happening around 142 yeah for for some odd reason the daddy-o whose health has deteriorated since the first half of the film I, I don't understand why, but he decides to actually go to the southern warmth and sun with his bad health. Even though you would, would think <laughs> that since, since the film tells you how, how, how Daddy O. Stone Man is, is the radical politician and the not approved politician in, 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 in the southern pers- pers- perspective, he's even seen as someone who is dangerous in his radical politics. You would think that South would be the last possible location that Stonemans would go to. Ah, but so they do. And, quote, pride battles with love for the heart's conquest. So it's now the epic battle between pride and love. Who will win? I noticed that there's a lot of hugging. Hugging this person, hugging that person. I failed to see, I think, any kisses in this film. Must have been a big deal back in the day. Yeah, Kravitz just would have had to pay his actors extra for kissing. And the lack of vaccines in those days, you know, you have to be careful what kind of a microbial uh, balance or imbalance you're going to have following a kiss. I, I somehow believe, I'm willing to believe that the, the people of, of those times didn't even know about, about bacteria. Mm. <laughs> the microscope already invented. Well... <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if microscope would have been decl- declared as witchcraft. <laughs> well, naturally, to the North's failures, the Negroes and carpetbaggers sweep the state, as the title card says. They sweep the state in such of a fashion that they <laughs> actually take control, 100% control of the courtrooms, and... Uh, and what seems to be a complete 100% control of the voting system. So uh, actually the white people are pushed off from voting. A moment which uh, actually telegraphs the appearance of the... I would say maybe even the the most troubling theme of the film, which is the the fact that, that the film depicts blacks as someone who in the end will corrupt and disfigure the, the American democracy. As as be, basically we are being shown in in all, all the courtroom scenes, the blacks all, all together when it comes to after being freed and after being given a foothold in American American politics here in in the film are being shown shown as someone who are unable to to kind of let go of their animalistic nature, which I guess is genetically hard coded in them. Since in all, all, all the all the Senate and all the court scenes, that you are 
the repeater being shown, the blacks incapable of acting well, like the like the situation would demand. Yeah, since this was my first time seeing the birth of a nation, uh, because I'm a bad cinephile, uh, I was thinking around the halfway: is this some kind of a stupid parody that the director is trying to pull up here, uh, like telling some kind of a alternative? Kind of a South glorifying story, but in the essence it being kind of ridiculous in the South and its ideals of those times. But no, no, it, it appears to be nothing of that sort. In fact, this director himself was born in Kentucky, in good old South. And his father was in the war, fighting on, on the Confederate side. But the, this, the riot in the Masters Hall scene, the courthouse scene, this is one of those key sequences in the entire film. Like... This what I thought was getting into the complete side of parody, but unfortunately it's not. And it gives you this chaotic look at the courthouse where there is no order, there is no leader in the house, no focus on anyone, so completely out of control, and uh, they are passing all kinds of legislations which which are supposed to be bad decisions, like, well, something completely amazing like that the white people must salute black officers and i suppose the other way around it would not then work is what is being suggested here anyway then also interracial marriage is one discussion topic that is they're trying to legislate and there's ridiculous outnumbering of blacks to whites <laughs> i don't actually see any whites there i mean i see the, the you, black faces you 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 see white in Exactly one shot when it comes to a master's hall scenes. Okay. It's they 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 you you or you see the backs of the white. So there is a exactly one shot where you are shown kind of a group of white like legislators, like ten of them or six, and they are all basically they they are all in one group surrounded by 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 the blacks and and they all seem to be snoozing. Yeah, one guy eating chicken. And that really kind of summarizes the whole Masters Hall scenes. It's basically, it's it's racist de- depictions. It's depictions of uh, like it's it, it's racist depictions like like with, with the dude eating the chicken or the or the another guy who secretly sips whiskey or hooch from his flask as nobody as nobody is watching and. It's basically showing the ineffective nature of of blacks entering and doing politics in in American poli- political system. On top of them, it, on top of them, it also plays a hell of a lo- long game with basically the white fears. There's a big part being played about the mixing of races with the basically with with the notions of Inter interracial marriage being allowed, that being allowed in in the legal context. Uh, also, the the whole notion when when they are deciding about the interracial marriage, the how how the scene plays out. There is there is a there the the scene is being cross cut from from the legislator's side, which is a group of black men leering at white women, and that's basically that's what you are being given. In in the moment when the film shows you that the interracial marriage law is being uh, uh, being passed, yeah, yeah, inaccurate, wrong, and 
creepy and scaremongering. Can't believe race has been such of a big deal at some point. Well, but then again, you know, race still being big deal e- even today. And that's, I, I would say, one of the more worrying aspects when it comes to the birth of a nation is that a lot of these ideas still, e- even though even though this kind of, kind of a systematical and, and governmentally accepted hate that you see in birth, even though that has been abolished and you can't be this outrageously hateful, at least openly anymore, but the ideas and fears they still every now and so often manifest in in the more modern discourse. Sure, it's unfortunately also something that is kind of built up in us humans that that we easily more easily accept and identify with somebody or some people who who look the same, appear the same, and it's not even that much about that. It's about what kind of people are we are living closest to each other and the kind of people that we tend to regard as the safe zone so it's kind of a lack of an experience as well lack of an exposure to different kinds of races something funny happens in 202 and a few seconds later there's uh, one of these griffith title cards but the griffith title card style changes at least in my copy of the film here Completely, and also the font is different. It's the first title card that I see that is changing the font and everything. At 2.02.43, then it returns back to normal. It's almost like it was created out of scratch for this release. Now we're starting to get to the Ku Klux Klan. Quote, we shall crush the white south under the heel of the black south. And that's of course the kind of feelings that uh, all of the blacks shared. Is That's what the movie suggests. Well, kind of kudos to the film that actually might be somewhat accurate. Mm. That might actually be somewhat accurate depiction of what South could have actually felt during those times, right? Because <clears throat> yeah, because South in, in, in the end, as being in the in the losing side and basically losing the whole slavery economy that they have they had been so dependent on up until then and kind of a have to, having to make at least some remedies for for the whole slavery thing after the civil war it could actually i i could very well believe that that the southerners themselves would have felt and believed that what it was all about was simply you know the blacks raising up and crossing the ma- white man's way of life, or crossing the white south under the pla- heel of black south, because in a way for southerners that is that is kind of what happened, or their their way of life, which or, or the part of their way of life which ha- which had revolved around slavery and using slave slave labor, that really did come to an end, and that was crushed. What I believe happens now is that the, the lady of the Stolman household breaks off the engagement with the Cameron Hall's household's brother because of the racist undertones that she's detecting in this guy. And another title card, over 400,000 Ku Klux costumes made by the woman of the South and not one trust betrayed. Of course not. They're Southerners. They are basic, basically all clan members in the South. Oh yeah. Oh, now we get the in into this uh, peeping blackface so this uh, sister of the stallman family 
which I thought was having some kind of a mental instability moments during the house fire. She's um, throughout the film altogether. Pretty much. Not sure what to what what was the actual reason for it. What was she simply simply laughing because she couldn't contain herself while filming? Like <laughs> this is too funny to be filming such of a film. Uh, whichever the case, now this uh, beeping blackface is chasing the lady all over the forest. Something that should could be stated for D.W. Griffith's advantage, if you want, if you will, in this is that it's never stated out that the blackface would be raping her. No, 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 that's not mentioned anywhere. It's basically what what's he he said. He he's kind of interested in the lady and wants to have some kind of time with her, but it's never established what that is. But clearly he's in, interested in the lady and follows her around the goddamn forest. It could be that he's like, hey, yo, lady, you you forgot your hat here. I'm trying to return it, but you're running away from me. Or it could be that he wants to have some kind of a romantic dinner with the lady. Or thirdly, it might be that he's willing to marry her outright. Or fourthly, it could be that he's really excited to rape her right now, right there in the forest. But then again, it's never stated out, really. It's never you're, stated you're out. You're being way too curious with the film here. Like, like visuals-wise, the film extremely clearly telegraphs to the audience that rape is what is going to happen. In any case, what factually, what, what happens here, which cannot be argued, is that this black face is running around in the forest, following her around, and then the lady just decides to jump because... She is absolutely convinced that something really bad will happen. This black guy will catch me. Jumps to her death. Once again, from the le- leering, the, from the leering eye glances that the, the gas here takes of the lady, it's, it's pretty obvious that rape is what was on the table on the moment. Probably, but uh, even without knowing the, if you would know, not know the backgrounds of the film, you could make the argument that this guy is just looking for some kind of a romantic dinner here. But I, I would say that you could make the exactly opposite argument. Like even if you wouldn't know what what is per, the part of a nation's reputation and legacy and the trouble, problematic racial elements of the film, you would still read that scene as a lady escaping her rapist. Yeah, well, I think jumping over a cliff was kind of a overkill, but it's definitely overkill as he, she gets killed. And there's an investigation that happens in some room that has a lot of black people and uh, there is this very handsome guy who picks up a fight with all the black guys in the room gets shirtless as well and Ku Klux Klan find the alleged to be rapist and uh, kill the guy and the body is dumped in front of the Silas lunch porch at 2.34 the horse is disturbingly close to the flames sometimes because the Ku Klux Klan are, are having some kind of a barbecue party as they usually do Scalawag this, scalawag that, carpetbagger this. The blacks are getting out of control and the Ku Klux Klan has got a note that something needs to be done, so the heroic clan of that is that uh, in the way that it's depicted in this film is now launching their attack against the terrible black faces. And Lynch is making his proposal for marriage. Lady is not really warming up to the idea, tries to escape, and that doesn't go anywhere. She breaks the window even, faints twice, and the clan takes forever to get into the town. 
Yeah, when Clan gets into the town, surprisingly quickly. Seeing how yeah. they have to kind of reform all, all their ranks before they can even leave, leave to the town. Hence the length of three hours for the film. Well, the but... length of the three, three hours of the film is basically because the film wastes for the first hour and a half on that, on that pointless love story subplot or the, or the main narrative. White spies are disguised. There are some internal, external shot play here and the Cockbox is getting closer and closer and closer. Finally, there is the attack on the cabin with all guns blazing, and the KKK win the day. While the black people are now scared of the clansmen who are outside, forcing them to go back to their rooms. We have a bit odd editing here once again at 3:11, where you see this guy on a horse with the sword. Now, obviously, the image of the guy has been superimposed over the original image. I mean, the guy is also oversized as hell compared to the rest of the people. He even fades out on his own from the image. And then there is apparently Jesus Christ in the middle of the image as some kind of a ghostly figure. It's hard to know what's going on exactly. Uh, it's it, Essentially, it's supposed to be depicting the kind of a spirit of war which is being banished by... The peace that the society and the uh, Southern America has now reached, thanks to the clan, and the follow-up image that the Jesus amongst the crowd is supposed to be depicting that peace, as it kind of descends upon the people. Of course. And then at 312 you have one of these weird two splits, where you have the very romantic beach resort over the cliff, which might be one of the best shots of the entire film. And on the left side you see a um, city landscape. Liberty and Union, one and inseparable, now and forever. The end. That was the birth of a nation, Henrik. Was it too fast for your tastes? Mm, what do you mean? We ran through the film quite fast. Not at all. There really is not that much to cover in, in scene by scene in Birth of a Nation. There's more to cover in theme. And yeah. basically in the racist undertones of the film. Yeah, but it was really interesting to look at a film this old. Of course, everybody who were working on the film have already died, and the film is from def definitely different kind of times. And But there's a lot of topics still to discuss. For example, do you think this, sh this film should be banned? We also had this kind of a discussion in Gone with the Wind, so should this kind of a film be banned? Mm, I don't know. It, it's kind of a hard question. Originally, I've been very, I've been very strong defendant, defender of of the free speech, and on, on that regard, I in in the past I have been pretty ready to de defend even even birth of the nation or its right to exist, as the heinous as the film is. But looking at the modern times, I would say that it's becoming increasingly difficult to ac actually say have we really moved past. From the ideas and the sentiments of the peoples of the 1950s. Like, are we really better than what the, the people of those times were? Yeah, we are mostly. But uh, there are always exceptions to the rule. Well, are we? Because I kind of constantly, these days, I end up running, running up with the exceptions. Or, or the so-called exceptions to the rule. I don't know if I should say this, but you're living in Rovaniemi after all. But not, not just Rovaniemi, like, well, basically globally. Poland? 
itself as an as a country, uh, what I've been following your news articles and postings from from the politics of Poland, it's yeah leading into a more more and more totalitarian and authoritarian direction as we speak. There's the whole basically the the American discourse which which these days revolve around that concept. Should there be a second civil war so that we could or, or culling of the weak and undeserving from the from the nation? There's also the you know there's even the the rising fascist and and racist undertones in in Finnish. So what do you say? Should the film be banned? No, I'm not really advocating for mostly any any banning of any kind. Of course, if we're talking about some kind of well, you could of course make the juxtaposing of firearms and and this film in the sense that if you're closer to firearm firearms you're more likely to shoot the gun if you're more closely to harmful material you might pick up the gun and then shoot the children at school but then again then again you can't really ban things i think on the basis that there is some part of the general population that is so stupid that they... I don't know, they, they again, it's it's in the nature of fascism, and fascism is what this film also advocates, that fascism, in the end, it, it, it extinguishes all the other forms of dialogue, and basically all the other rhetoric, except the fascist rhetoric. So, when, when, when you allow fascists speak, you also play with the gamble that all the other speak will be extinguished by the fascists. Mm. No, it's important to have these kind of things out there for educational purposes. Like you said, this film is reflecting of some of the views that people held at the time. And for that reason, it's kind of like the gun in the wind, that it's kind of a time capsule into the, into the problems of people's views of those times. But the, for, for that to actually hold water, that would also mean that people would be able to learn from all, all these examples and all these films. Yeah, and well, more, more than that, be able to learn the right re- right lessons from the films. Yeah, well, I, I think it's something that nowadays you can't make a film of this type. So so it's not like there's going to be like a new wave of this kind of a propaganda anytime soon. Of course, we have the internet now, so... The, also, in that sense, I guess anything can happen. But I'm not advocating for the birth of a nation to be played on any national TV or TV at all. But I think people should have access to it for historical purposes and educational but purposes. If, if, if you're not advocating for national TV, if you're not advocating for open presentation of the film, that on its own right also is is a form of soft censorship. That's also limiting people's ability to actually find and see and experience the picture. Perhaps, yeah. I feel a little bit uncomfortable about the fact that some people, some couch potatoes, would be able to have the easiest possible access to watching this film on on TV. So to make it a little bit more complicated that you actually have to buy it or buy it on iTunes or wherever it's, it's available. It's a better approach in my opinion. So since since you actually feel uncomfortable with with the idea of people being easily finding out this film or having having the possibility of seeing this film too easy for some as as you put it couch potatoes does it mean that do you 
how or how do you put it then? How much do you actually believe that we humans, as a as a race, have actually advanced from the times of 1950? Well, when it comes to if you ask from from like the leftist Finns, they would probably say, "Well, we have made a lot of development, but we are not quite, not even remotely there where we should be when it comes to racial relations." I agree, but there there is also this kind of a, I think what is an illusion that there has been that there has not been any fundamental advancements in since the slavery or something like that and that's obviously false for example we don't pull off any of these kind of films anymore we don't have like open support for Ku Klux Klan we don't separate the races we don't at least officially and we don't there's generally less racism in the world but Probably, yeah, you're trying to drive towards the point that there's more silent racism or kind of a more nuanced racism, if you will, if that makes any sense. It's it's in people's eye contact on on this all of these small gestures, uh, microaggression, micro racism. More, more, more than microaggression, micro racism. What, what I'm kind of wondering is is there has the racism still just only find a new way to hide itself like like we we do and and pass on open limitations on racism we de- we denounce Cuckoo's clan and we set up a le- le- legislations that are on their core they are meant to abolish racism and kind of soothing the the racial politics but is that only a surface level action and is it so that when you go go to the message boards is is there still the same racist intent intent and same racist rhetoric is it still very much alive there like, yes you, but we have, have to have discuss we just created created the soap boxes and and bubbles where basically we can still uphold these same kind of a mentalities that that play part in in birth of nation now we just have we have only transported them to the, to the message message boards yeah of course that still is living and doing fine the racism we have to discuss the amounts of in which we see it or which it exists and uh, I, I would say that the public opinion has changed course immensely since 1915 of course uh, once again the leftist uh, politics would probably tell you in cases otherwise and uh, i would say that the biggest advocator of racism is actually the leftist politics at this moment i just follow what i'm seeing on the campuses for example i'm following what people write for reputable news sources like the new york times of course i can't just (laughs) right now give you some some sources to look at but it's pretty clear that there there is this there's this attitudes that are inflaming people to join these radical groups because they do not agree with the popular ideas of the moment that somehow whatever they do they are to be vindicated they are always wrong and somehow this is kind of just putting again some racial tensions into places where racial tensions shouldn't be in the first place like putting somebody and saying that well you know you you can't ever be right because i have a black skin tone this is the kind of rhetoric that is going to launch the new fucking Ku Klux Klansen. If you're a certain kind of person that's going to 
enflame you and you want to join some kind of a Ku Klux Klan. And all that to me simply sounds like people are giving too much credit and too much thought on simple newspaper column. Because that's what that actually sounds to me like. Those statements that you have come across. Newspaper column writing. And newspaper columns have always not been A, real news, and two, always have aimed to be kind of a extravagant, a little bit out there, pushing the boundary and pushing your buttons, so to speak. I, I wish that were the case, but if you look at the politics even globally, the great shift into far-right politics, I see is a, is a direct result of the leftist politics that, but they are picking some kind of a ideological nonsense that is starting to eat, eat up the people and they are looking for some kind of a change. And, and w- once again, you're using word politics. Which is really important in this discussion. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, which is really important in this discussion. And because of that, I actually, I honest to God, I need you to define the politics here. Like, I, I need you to present me the political decision made by a political party in place where politics is being made. That states that white person can ever can't ever actually understand the black perspective. Well, you can look at just even the home politics and some of the the people that identify as leftist minded. They they often might have these these ideas that I have discussed here. Which well, might... once again, I need an example of this because this this actually sounds awful a lot like seeing boogeymen in the dark corners. Sir is sure and then shows me some kind of uh, evidence as well of of why the politics have shifted in such of a tremendous way in, for example, the last five years. What do you think is the root cause for all of this? For for example, the British now willing to get rid of the EU. Well, Brits have always been willing to get rid of the EU, or that has been the driving for driving sentiment ever since the Thatcher years. The, basically, the now now that that the that the majority of our population came behind Brexit in in leave or stay vote, but that the driving force there was in in my opinion a populism pure and simple, and b the fact that well the stay party kind of fumbled the entire election. Yeah, the populism. That the question was proposed entirely wrong. You can't, you can't, in my opinion, you can't take the whole. Should we leave the European Union or should we stay in in it and simply kind of push it down on two questions: leave or stay. It it just doesn't work. And on top of that, the state party also failed completely in informing and telling people about what what is. European Union and what it does and what it means for the Brits. And if you want to look at even further, I would say there is a third element which is uh, which actually comes from the British homeland politics and the fact that there there has been a great many people who have felt that they have been left behind the British system on its own. They, fe- they felt abandoned and they felt that the government and the legislative body in, in Britain didn't take their concerns and their feelings seriously enough, didn't pay any attention, uh, any eye to them. And they, that kind of a, got transformed into 
A, in the sense that we have to do something drastic to take back the quote-unquote control, and B, it also transforming into a kind of a leave attitude and hatred towards the EU, because these people weren't entirely sure which, which was the party that failed to pay any attention to them who actually left, left them behind. So when they were proposed with a question, hey, here's this EU element, should we leave or stay? In that moment, their hostilities that they in reality felt towards the government and the, the British legislative elite, it got mixed and they instead targeted towards the EU. But what was the source for this populistic ideas? Where did they come from? How did they get more ammo? to take over the most of the Europe and the politics of the world. That I would also put into the main fault of and shortcomings of the leftist politics, unfortunately. I'm not talking about populistic ideas in Britain or global populistic ideas. Well, the, the populistic ideas globally that we're seeing right now. The common failing in all of these countries to discuss from the point of view of what they do know instead of some fumbled, put-together ideas. Well, that's kind of been going on in politics basically since the birth of politics. Forever, yes. It, the, 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 uh, populism has been within politics ever since the fucking ancient Rome. For God's sake, we, we haven't really invented any new problem. We are simply repeating something that has been problem in basically any every, every form. Of, of government and governmental control since since basically government was where became a thing yeah the, the main point here was that that so, somehow due to this heavy history of the United States they have like a huge baggage when it comes to any kind of race relations discussions and sometimes the way that they talk about it it's starting to get even pretty humorous aspects where, where it's just overpronounced in the whole discussions. Looking at the far from Finland, it's like you look at these discussions and uh, it's just something that it's not, it's something that doesn't even happen here. It, it, it wouldn't, wouldn't go that way in Finland. I feel that we are way ahead in this discussion. I'm saying that in the States, the two races, so to speak, are juxtaposed too much against each other when they should be actually doing the opposite. But with some of the leftist politics, so yeah, I keep saying politics, but some of the leftists... Yeah, you keep saying politics, and it's really nagging me. All this politics when you are not giving me an example on the politics. Like, like you, you, you offer me student groups. Well, let's just say attitudes. There, there are some uh, attitudes that, that lead to this overpronouncement of race. Whereas in Finland, we don't have the similar problems anymore or never even even really had but uh, somehow you, you the, mean on race or in general on race on race i'm only talking well, about well we race. never had had enough race in finland to actually deal with that to actually face that problem maybe if you want to finish example of similar type of situation and similar type of attitudes against a crew in in finland and and them performing publicly of and i'm kind of guessing what you are, what you were aiming at with, with with your race group argument but you know just look at the gay pride that's open and loud and it's it's 
and accepted for the most part, yeah. By by a closed group, which is to present that closed group, and it actually has led into a hate-filled counter-reaction. Whatever is happening in Finland in, in, in those scenes, it's, yeah, there are some of these little advocates of different kind of narrative, but it's nothing compared to what you have, for example, in Poland, where you really have some rocks thrown around you or you have some gas or some questionable police antics. But for the most part, it's going just fine in Finland. I feel that just, it's just baffling to me sometimes what you hear from the States, that they are still discussing this with such of a, such of a passion, unfortunately, because it is well, really... Well, wh- why shouldn't they be discussing about this with passion? It's just, it just feels that it's, it's, uh, there's some kind of a, some kind of a split black and white, and that is, cons- that is making the problem in itself in this fucking country. Because in in some cer- uh, on some level, realities between black and white, you know, they do actually exist. They exist between each group, basically every single group. Mm-hmm. I I as a straight per- person, I I can't ever clearly see the K perspective. I can't walk in your shoes. That's why we have to communicate. That's why you have to tell me. What it's like to be a gay person? What it's like to be a gay person in Poland? Yeah, and at the same Because time, at the same time, you're a human being. You understand that some some people are different amongst us, and that's kind of the fundamental that you just need to understand to be to survive and to keep peace in society. Yeah. So the point was, you you have to understand that there are different realities between. Gay and straight, between black and white. Well, that, that's kind of the thing, because because yes and no. What do you have there? You have a skin color difference. You have maybe tonal differences in voice. If that's hard to overcome, then oh my god, what can I say? And that's the problem that you have in the United States, and that's that's what they need to talk about. But but we we still are against the left. Just so that we are clear on at least on one thing on this on this discussion discussion because. By jolly, is this, this for me at least really hard to follow? Yeah, because but, but left or... because because when I say that left has been a integral part in fucking up the politics around the world, it doesn't mean that that the left is this is completely bad and unable to do its job. Well, I... you kind of are because you just said that they fucked up the politics. Yep. Yeah, they did. They, so so they, they are unable to do their job and they are a- actually kind of bad, either willingly or unwillingly, but, you know, they fucked up the entire world and the politics. <laughs> yeah, I don't see the problem with that argument. You, you know, there's nuances to these things. It's not just that they have done that. They also have a lot of politics that I agree with. And but, so but they it's... fucked up the world. Like, like that is pretty bad. Yeah. On its own right. Like, What if I say? would fuck up the world, the world would be fucked up, and you would live in the world. So I would have fucked up your life, right? Because I fucked up the world. Uh, That, um, this is kind of the reason why I I tried, why I'm ask, asking for, you know, examples, and why why I try to be precise here. Because if the world has lost. been fu- fucked up, as as you said, leftists has have fucked up the world. That means... That the world is being fucked up, so your life has been fucked up. So what is the good thing in in leftist then? You know, you are completely fucked. Like I said, 
there's a lot of nuances to this. Well, this has to sound awfully like Griffith nuances. Oh, for fuck's sake. Like, 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 situation is fucked beyond control, but... So they are the bad guys, right? It's not like in the movies, Henrik, where somebody does some bad deed that is really bad, and then I don't agree with them at all on any level. So that's, because this that's, discussion, that's what it boils down to. Because this discussion started with you, with you not agreeing with them at all, at in any, any level. Nope, no, not true at all. Nope, you, nope, you, nope. You, got, you, you started with, with how leftist politics, which you still haven't presented an example, have okay, ba- basically caused the rise of, of, of the right-wing politics mm-hmm. and will cause some kind of a future calamity and also have fucked up the world. Was the, the latest? What are you looking for here? What are you looking for here? Tell me. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, actually, I'm looking for your perspective here. Like, I, I, I honestly, God, I don't have any ulterior motives here. Me neither. I, I'm merely trying to to find, see, and understand your perspective. Well, you see, there are simply just some leftist politics that have been problematic and which have not been based on very scientific material, which have made a big outrage in many countries, which has led to the dominion of the right-wing politics. I can give you one, one, one glimpse of where I'm going from. For example, what is pretty popular, or has been popular for the States for some time, which is now garnering some, some fame also in Europe, is the, the concept of safe spaces. You can put somebody in a safe space just to, you know, you know, separate this person from the rest of the group as a way to, as a way to shelter them, as a way to, you know, just avoiding the other person's views effectively. You provide a safe space from the other views of other people. Or, or you can outright ban some conferences because somebody has other points of view, many of which I do not agree with at all but just outright banning them and not giving them a possibility to, to voice their opinion. And that's what really, really worries me. That's what the, the, the left side has been doing for some time. And that this is what has been giving a lot of minus points for them and more votes for Trump. But but safe spaces then themselves are nothing more than, you know, places created for individuals feel marginalized. We are, we are not really talking about any kind of a big deal here. We are, we are talking about some place, like some space, somewhere, where a group of marginalized people, or people who feel they are marginalized, they can come together. It can be a broom closet, it can be a table in a cafeteria, it may even be temporarily, like like you you and, and your marginalized friends come around in a cafeteria and sit around one table. That That's, that's a place... For people who feel marginalized, and you, you, or then, or then you can have a, a, a kind, of, kind of a created and kind of a more long-lasting safe space, like, like for example, clubhouse in in broom closet or somewhere <laughs> like that, and that is essentially a safe space. Yeah. So whenever somebody says something that is apparently, in your opinion. In your opinion, it's hurting you. Let's say I say that, that in my opinion, women should not have brunette hair. So you get offended. So this discussion is shut down because one person has, 
has feels offended and needs to find a safe space at the moment. So that's that's the kind of idea I get from the of the environment of the United States politically right now. But the discussion in the United States hasn't been shut down. You yourself admitted that it's actually going on very vigorously even as we speak. Even too vigorously because you actually made the notion that they talk about it too much. Yeah, actually maybe they should be talking about it even more because for fuck's sake, you can't even have a when it comes to birth of a nation. You can't even have a fucking discussion about the birth of a nation publicly in that fucking country. You know where they had the, you know, the, the Blu-ray interview for the BFI regarding the birth of a nation, they had to come to Britain. There were about maybe a two-thirds representation of American professors and they they had to travel to to the UK to have this discussion because nobody wants to have a panel of any kind about the birth of a nation which saddens me because that's exactly where the discussion should be happening there was a event 100 years of the birth of a nation or something like this that the the conference was called where there were about five or six professors that were from different universities mostly from the US discussing the birth of a nation and its implications and and problems and uh, what does it mean to the world today and that was really interesting but it's just saddening to see that this discussion was not able to take place in its home country where it should be taken like bull by the horns what, what is the situation now 100 years on so, so not th- knowing a... the, the event itself not not having not seen you know or even heard about this this event myself it's really hard to comment on this like or to really say what 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 happened and why? Okay. It was just one example of many that I have encountered where there are insane levels of sensitivities towards these discussions, which is a, which is a bad thing in this case where you're supposed to solve some of the problems that you, that you have in these, these race relations and then you're not able to do that. Anyway, fun times. Would it be the quickies? Well, yeah, we, we, yeah. Uh, unless you will continue this in a lot of discussion, of course we can go to the quickies. Yeah, like thank you for pushing me on a subject that I have not prepared on any level. <laughs> it, it, it's a subject that you yourself started. <laughs> you 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 brought up the topic. I merely tried to have you know a discussion up discussion about it in yeah. in that quick on on lifestyle that you want. Uh huh. Yeah, then as usual, if there's some kind of a topic that you don't like, then you keep pushing with it for like 45 minutes, but that's fine. Who, who said I don't like the topic? <laughs> no, no, seriously, who? Because I have a disagreement with that guy. Who's that? That the guy who, who said I don't like the topic. Do we have a third person on this co- conversation? Like, do we have to disperse the Discord server now? Is Craig sending you messages? Honestly, don't know what's going on anymore at this hour. Favorite performance? What would be my marsh in this film? Plays a complete loop. I don't know. I, I, I like the lady who was laughing when the house was on fire. Yeah, that was my, my marsh. Okay, so my marsh then. Favorite scene? Siege of the cabin. Uh, I like house fires. Favorite quote? A former enemies of the North and South are united again in common defense of the Aryan birthright. Because that's what the whole Yahoo in the end is all about. About feeling of right of 
of feeling that something belongs to you simply on the virtue of you being part of something. Sexual orientation, gender, or in here, race. But basically the notion that simply you through your association to, to this something, in, in film's case, the race, you automatically are entitled. And you don't have to work and you don't have to better yourself because why would you? You immediately, you are already covered because you have your birthright. Hmm. I kind of like the poetic nature of this quote. While youth dances the night away, childhood and old age slumber. Luckily this had nothing to do with politics or views of any kind really, so I like it. It has aged better than much of the, most of the film. Well, yeah, well... The, the quote, yeah, you you are aware that the scene itself is politically charged, right? Right, everything okay, is. Yeah. Just checking, just checking, because I'm still trying to find the mysterious third person on, on the Discord channel. No, it, it's probably related to something politically loaded, but I honestly, honest to God, don't even remember the, the place where in the movie where this part was. So, But uh, since it's the birth of a nation, it's easy to see that it's politically loaded. It, it, it was in the southern halls, if I remember correctly. Okay. Favorite kill. Good luck. Would be Maya Mars jumping to her goddamn death or out of that kill cliff. Yep. Yeah. Well. Your work. Your turn. No. You, you. Now you. Now you can pick your your favorite lynch black person. Yeah. It's the. It's the same death as yours. And it you, looks. You're, you're cheap, shooting yourself. Through this, man. No, oh, I'm not. It's a free... Yeah, you're, you're proposing me the question, then you're just... Yeah, yeah, the same man. <laughs> but definitely, it's a, it's like a um, f- long shot of, of the cliff, and then you see her falling, and actually it looks pretty realistic when she tumbles down. It doesn't look like a ragdoll or anything. It just <laughs> looks too real. But random confusing question, Henry. Go, go ahead. Seriously, man. Who, who is the mysterious third person? In the Discord channel, who who said that I I don't want I don't I don't enjoy the conversation. I, I'm still f- trying to find the guy. Well, it, it's I'm I'm doing the claim because you are getting so defensive here about the whole discussion. I'm just trying to be here as neutral as possible. But you most I I mean what? Hmm? I I mean you didn't start the discussion neutral to begin with. It, it was outright accusation. Maybe I put a little bit of color into it. You know, you have to have a little bit of spice in this podcast, but I really, really, really don't have any strong feelings towards any political narratives. I'm just picking out the best parts of what politics should be for me. So, no, I'm not standing on the right. I'm not standing on the left. I'm not standing on the center. I'm standing on my own. Thank you very much. But you're opposing the left. No, I'm not. Because that that was where, where you started the discussion. Left has fucked up all, all the things. things. I'm saying that it has fucked up a lot of things, but it doesn't then mean that I will completely oppose the left politics. That's how. That's how probably some. That's what. That's what the average voter thinks. And I don't understand why you're picking this kind of a approach into the conversation. That's what the uh, average voter thinks. Okay. Because that 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 was your. Basically, starting argument. Yeah, uh, I'm afraid I'm more nuanced than that. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, naturally. Seriously, of course. There are faults to each of these sides in the political spectrum. So if I say that there's one thing, albeit huge thing, that they have fucked up in the 
in the politics in the last years in Finland, in the United States, for example, Poland. It doesn't mean that I would choose the right side because of that. Nope. No, no, but but you indirectly like like this is this is why it got so interesting for me the discussion because you indirectly hinted that the the American left has caused the right to rise in Poland. Like you are being stoned in Poland because of the leftist of the in in America, and that I I honest mm-hmm. to God, honest to God, I I do find that kind of an interesting concept. Okay, and I would like to like like really. St- That is that concept, like how mm. that works. It it works in the way that in the public eye, the politics of the United States have a hell of a lot of visibility, and that alone allows the the politics to spread widely. And the, the feelings and the, the 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 views towards the leftist politics, which are of course different all around the world in some way or another. But a lot of this that that you see of the rhetoric, how The leftist politics work, etc. There are influences from the politics of the United States and Poland being a close ally of the of the NATO, being a close ally of the states and supporting of the Donald Trump's presidency. At least when you go ask for for the dominating party here, in many aspects they they have some similar politics. That's something that influences the politics here. And, and this is. Precisely where I would actually need an example on on the actual leftist politics. I think that's something that we can pick up on some other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, fine. But but you know, just you just you know, I'm not opposed to this discussion as as you claimed. On the contrary, I'm extremely interested in this discussion. I'm actually trying to have the discussion. Here, still, right now, in in random confusing question, <laughs> on, on the first first note that you gave me that I can once again <laughs> run away with one whatever I wanted, want I wanted to go with the discussion, and you are shutting me down. So first image that comes that comes to your mind, then if we are not gonna have the discussion, Donald Trump, mm, house in flames. Okay, my choose is John Wilkes Booth. I mean. In that close-up on the theater scene, mm-hmm. <laughs> what pulled you out? That the fact that the first hour and a half is so mind-numbingly boring, like Jesus Christ, it's the the first half of the film doesn't work at all. It it does get more more interesting on the second half, but it gets interesting of all, all the for all the wrong reasons. It gets interesting because it gets so outlawed graciously racist but most definitely the first half doesn't work it takes forever and you you'll be bored out of your skull during the first 30 minutes of it yeah something like that this is of course something that you need to put also in a context that this is something that was blowing everybody's minds in 1915 and well i i guess i can't just put my mind into 1915 context perfectly ever because i have not lived through that age But even then, if I would try to play this little bit of a role play, I think this this first half just when they were making silent films, they weren't exactly still making the scenes very tight in a way. It it wasn't even necessarily the goal. The goal was just to put images together and and show the audience how cool it is. And just going to the theater itself was an experience in itself. So not a lot of attention, I think, was 
paid on 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 the the scenes in the sense that how long they are taking if they bumble on or if we're having enough different shot sizes but uh, anyway it stands that that the first half of it is quite numbingly boring and then it gets to the second half like you said for all the wrong reasons it's pretty exciting but have to give credit for Griffith for being able to actually make it somewhat exciting once again for the wrong reasons but it's not bad storytelling in the second half now i would say it's still bad storytelling also you mean in the content or how it's technically composed how it's technically composed like this this film has also major technical issues it has pacing issues characters are paper thin mm. they're, they're one dimensional at best the, the, the love story, which still ca- carries over in, in the second half, doesn't work at all. There's also, also the fact that the clans in, uh, during the second half are c- c- kind of founded just like that, on, on the snap of your fingers. That is, but they, they started up, yeah, uh, uh, after Cameron gets the, gets, gets the idea from, from two kids. Kind of hilarious on its own right, but you know... From there, all of a sudden, they are militia, 10,000 strong. Like it, when it comes to the story, then the second half also, also it, it has major mechanical fumblings. Yep, what pulled you in? The scale, most defen- and most not- more notably on the battlefield scene. Mm, I guess the biggest things that pulled me in were some, just marveling at some of the, some of the trick shots. Pretty nice. And, oh, the score. The score is really good. It was pleasant to listen to. That's all I can say with my excellent skills as a musician. Oh, it just tuned out the score. Like, it just became white notes for me. In a way, in a way. But I think it complemented the moments really well. Now, what would you change in the film? Here's your scissors for the sacrilege, which might not be so sacrilegious this time. The first thing to go would be the first half. What? Little there is salvage, and that most definitely is a little. I would transport to the second half, and well, basically from there on, I would kind of at this point I would leave it at that. When it comes to this quick category, when it uh, comes to really fixing the film, it becomes like a real nightmarish workplace. You would have to fix the pacing and the characters and the storytelling all together. Ditch the, ditch the love story almost entirely. If not entirely, you would have to tinker with the political elements or the political plot hell of a lot more to make it work. You kind of, I would say you would also have to, you know, try to fix the Ku Klux Klan plot or the moment in, in narrative. I think so. And, you know, it, it would be so much work that it soon would become the case that just would have to axe the entire film. Yeah, if we if we were to follow somewhat uh, D.W. Griffith's visionary vision still here with the scissors, then I would try to make the first half of the film faster, more concise. Maybe make some few title cards that explain a little better where we are going here. How did you get the picture? How are you so obsessed now about the lady and more juxtaposition between this? families maybe but then on a wider scale yeah these problematic elements here i don't know i would have to cut the entire film to pieces but hey you really know you're watching the birth of a nation when 
Do you yourself dress up as a scary ghost for Halloween? Oh, you do that kind of things. Well, you really know you're watching The Birth of a Nation when you see Ku Klux Klan riding on horseback. You don't see that stuff every day. Or Ku Klux Klan to begin with. Actually, this is the one of two films that the director has with the Ku Klux Klan. In the other short film, actually, the Ku Klux Klan is portrayed as uh, an antagonist. Three adjectives to describe the film. Innovative, historically accurate and not racist. Uh, okay. Misguided, racist, historical. You just weren't listening to Griffith and his title. Pardon me. You weren't able to sign me on to the KKK just yet. I still have time, man. I still have time. Just wait for the next week's movie. Which is a ghost story. Yeah? Yeah, carrying on with the with the with the white clothing. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Completely lost me there. Did you look at your watch? Uh most definitely. Like the first hour first half of the film, the hour hour and a half love story part is nothing more than you checking your watch. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. constantly. It it does ease up on the on the second half. Like I said, when when once all, all the really racist stuff comes to the fo- forefront and and you have all, all, all the rape threats and all that going on. But yeah, uh, the first half of the film, it's insufferable. Very good. <clears throat> yeah, I looked at my watch as well. Mostly on the second half of the film, which is very slow. The second half? On the first half, excuse me. Okay, just checking. Would you recommend The Birth of a Nation? Uh, I don't know. I, I honestly God, I don't know with this one. It like it, there's a multitude of factors to take on with taking with when when choosing to recommend or not recommend film. The, the first one is can you recommend it? Is, is it is it perhaps still too influential? Like can you really put enough faith in in the on your fellow man to trust that that he can kind of just watch the film and it won't lead into a complete mess of problems as a, as a result. I was originally I was going to give a like a go around answer to the question and simply say that the, perhaps not to the Western audiences because there's really nothing to, to see for example Europeans in the birth of a nation but maybe American contempor- uh, con- uh, maybe American audiences can can look at the film and see how far they've come but I don't know that that notion is kind of being tested by by the reformation of or attempts of reformation of the KKK lines in real life but if you go with the gun with the wind logic then you would not recommend this even though it has some views of of its times very visible here and i think for educational purposes that would be quite uh, as needed as gone with the wind uh, gone with the wind had two things on its side the first one was that the intent the original intent was good uh, the selznick was not trying to make kkk endorsing hate black people film he was trying to do the exact opposite opposite Selznikwa during the production of the film, Selznik was in increasingly afraid that Gone with the Wind might be misinterpreted and it might accidentally revigorate the recovate the clan or hurt the the black feelings. So that that's the first thing. The second one is that 
when it comes to uh, to going with the wind, when it comes to film language, when it comes to text, when it comes to what the film argues, it in the end it ends up arguing completely against the values that are presented to you in the birth of a nation. So on, on that sense, Gone with the Wind actually can still somehow be a film that teaches you something. Yeah, for example, marital rape. Well, you are surprisingly hang up with the rape. Am I? Yeah, I'm surprised that you brought it up again. I'm, I was actually surprised that it, it was it was your the second notion that you made in the short description of the episode in in the Facebook because oh, yeah yeah. Yeah, I, I I was kind of surprised that like from the two po- highlight points, that was the second one. Um, because but, it sells well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I I, I don't know if it, I, I didn't check how many clicks we got with 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 rape notion. Uh, but still, you know, it it's not trying to advocate teach you to rape for heaven's sake, man. Don't get so hung up on one scene. In fact. Like I tried to say in, in that episode, in Gone with the Wind, the rape, rape scene actually works as a way to condemn Red Butler. And it uh, also works as a scene that showcases Red Butler's moral compass, because Red Butler in the end acknowledges in the actual right next morning that what he did was wrong, and he should actually leave Scarlet as a result. The fuck it was. Red Butler maybe sorry after that little drinking but he in no moment ever says that he was sorry about the rape exactly and well well it could he, be he came to apologize and after that he actually proposed to score that they divorce and 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 this is important it's not indicated anywhere that these two things are related it's just that red butler has had enough and he's happy to end the marriage, he, which has he, been a catastrophe for him for all, all that time. I, I would say that that really was indicated by the fact that the whole moment starts with Red Butler coming and apologizing what happened last night, meaning the rape. Yeah, maybe, let's and, grant that, but then again, breaking up the whole marriage, I think, had nothing to do with the rape. Well, I, I would say it most definitely had, since it, it goes like Red Butler comes, uh, apologizes for the rape, Makes makes bad excuses, but you know, apologizes still and acknowledges that his ap- ac- apologies are not enough in in face of the rape, and then immediately says that maybe we should divorce. Yeah, and actually, Scarlet was only enjoying that rape the next morning, so I don't know that that is glorifying rape pretty much. Well, but you know, if, if you take that and condemn the movie on basis of that, not only like like like. like with with well, what else is there? Because pe- women enjoying being raped or, or showing the very next morning that they they found the experience still pleasant, even though they were hesitant at first. It basically ties down every, most of the movies that have rape as an element. It in fact it's cast a hell of a lot of movies in real really bad light. What one could say that that really works as an as an counter argument against, uh, for example, the porn films. So should we also, you know, condemn and abolish those? We shouldn't abolish anything. Just saying what the gun with the wind has obviously done wrong here. 
But, but I, I still do argue that it didn't do wrong. It didn't do wrong glorifying rape. It didn't do wrong by just getting Get Butler out of the trouble. Uh, I'm just gonna break up with you. Too bad that I... It's just something that happens. You know, sometimes, if, darling, if, I might if rape you. It's just a problem to you, like like the way how Hollywood handles rape. Of course it is. Okay. Then how do you deal with all them Bond movies? Like, serious question. Because they yeah. have the basic same element. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. I'm not saying anything so, against so, that. So, are they also advocating rape culture? Mm, yep. Yep, they are. Well, shouldn't we then be against Bond movies? You know, for advocating rape culture. Rape being kind of bad, still. I mean... I, I'm like, just asking. Like I said, this rape is not only the only factor that was bothersome in Gone with the no, Wind. But no, anyway. please, please. No, I, I, once again, like, 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 like with the leftist politics, politics question. I'm, I'm, I'm seriously, I'm curious and interested. Okay. To, to follow this, this discourse. So, if if you are willing, please, you know, give me the next example. Well, the depiction of, of course, the. Slaves being very happy and content in their position as being slaves. Yeah, or, that or, that was really problematic from the from the government's per- perspective. I, w- I would say that was perhaps the biggest mistake that the film made, and it was a major mistake. Or showing the northerners as some kind of a bad uh, entity that is going to take take over the the south and the prosperity and peace of the south which is complete horseshit and then then uh, then there's some uh, b- black guy with a top hat saying something very very impolite towards the southerners as he goes by with his yeah, that, horse that, carriage yeah that also that was pretty bad but i'm not saying uh, that you shouldn't see gone with the wind at the same breath but I, I would still maintain that Gone with the Wind is nowhere near when it comes to the when, when it comes Problems. to the film being thematically quote unquote bad mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. arguing the wrong wrong the things and championing the wrong perspectives. I would say Gone with the Wind is nowhere near mm-hmm. the, the the same ballpark as as the Birth of a Nation. I would actually say that. Gone with the wind. Even with those those problematic problematic elements, Gone with the wind still is very much anti birth of the nation. Mm, well, maybe it is, or maybe it's just the director wanting to hide something that could be controversial. It doesn't have to say that the producer wasn't a supporter of the KKK club. Uh like you you meaning that Selesnik, who produced Gone with the Wind, was supporting KKK? No. Theoretically speaking, because they only left out the KKK because the the sensitivities had changed and they couldn't use it. Maybe they would have if they could have. I would still pretty strongly argue against that one. Mm. Like, like I said, I I think I I feel that Gone with the Wind is very open about the fact that it does not endorse KKK or it doesn't re- in endorse. Racism. Carpetbaggers. Once again, it, it is problematic, yeah. But it also paints the Southern Rebellion in a bad light. It shows it as a wrong move. It shows that the Southern gentlemen were nothing but, you know, hypocritical hotheads who wanted to actually start the fight with the North. It's a really weird movie. Sometimes it's like 
the director wants to be in support of the South sentiments and sometimes it's like it's not and it's like a parody of all of the Southern sentiments and sometimes the birth of a nation felt like that as well but then it becomes crystal clear that this guy actually really is supportive of these things that are seen in the title cards. Yeah, and that is the main kind of uh, distinction that I have between between the birth of, birth of a nation and Gone with the Wind. To me, Gone with the Wind is a movie that had noble and good intentions, and for most part did reach those intentions. What Gone with the Wind, however, ended up doing is it in few instances it really fumbled it. It fumbled it really bad, which results in a film that is not as strong and is not as whole as it could could have been. It's it's a film that, in my opinion, very strongly kind of condemns the Southern Rebellion and and shows you that that the Southerners were kind of a selfish pricks or all together, or at least a plantation owner. But it also fumbles this point by by the carpetbagger scene and and the way how it depicts slavery. But but I would say that Gone with the Wind still had a, had its heart in the right place. It just had a bad execution at times. At times, uh, the birth of a nation, on the other hand, to me is a film that which is hard. It really is in the wrong place. Yeah, and it it really tries to advocate its black heart to you. But Henrik, would you recommend this kind of a insane? story like i said it's it's hard to say i it it when it comes to the americans it it comes down to you know putting your faith in the, in the fellow man trusting that that they can they can have a distinction between what is real and what is not and and they understand that you shouldn't take any wild ideas from the film and that should be given that of course it's gonna play out like that or of course of course, you know, modern audiences can understand it. Of course, modern audiences won't sympathize and won't empathize a film like The Birth of a Nation. And then then you see the voter ID di- discussion. Then you see the calling of, for the Second Civil War. Then you see all, all these radical ideas. And, and you kind of start to wonder, like, have we really moved past all that? Have we become better? As, as a race, to be, be good enough that we can kind of stand watching the birth of a nation. And then you have kind of have to also ask to exactly who would you recommend the birth of a nation, because birth of a nation on its own right, it's damn boring film. Like, god damn it, mind-numbingly boring it is. And it, like mentioned, it has problems. And not just thematical problems, but, uh, but you know, film engineering pacing the characters, the plot lines, all of that. So who would you then recommend boring black and white film? You, you can't really give recommend this to any casual film viewer as a as a film that you can pop up on on the film night because if you put the, put the, put this one into your DVD player, it's it's 30 minutes max and your friend is already on mobile checking on Netflix. Mm. Maybe so, you have to break it break it down to smaller pieces and then kind of combine it together and see what the outcome is like. For one, you could uh, ask yourself, would you recommend this for historical reasons? Or, or did you like it? 
I guess you have to put those things together at least. No, I I didn't like it. I I detested its politics, its political views. And technically? Technically, I didn't like it. Hmm. I was part out of my goddamn mind. So, no, I didn't enjoy watching The Birth of a Nation. When it comes to historical-wise, I really can't see why I would recommend the film. Because when it comes to being innovative in, in film techniques, when it comes to being some kind of a groundbreaker in engineering of cinema, it, it it's beaten. The, the Swede spirit, the Italian spirit, female director spirit, that the techniques have all been used even before before the birth of a nation. So, historical-wise, no. Also, the only reason I, I would say to check out this film would be Because of the discussion you can have around and resulting from the film. Discussion like we have had tonight. I, I would say that's the only thing that the birth of a nation really has to give to you. The chance to, to kind of a look back at what was America's relationship to race. And then talk about and or use that and try to decipher what. America's relationship to race might be today and how the two might correlate. How much of the 1950s you still see in America's racial uh, policies today? Do you Mm, see uh, it in the institutional discrimination? Do you see it in the police police violence? Do you see it in the talks that or or the discourse that's going on in, in forum posts and Do you see it in Trump election? But that whole endeavor, like like watching over three hours of a black and white silent film, which is not as smart as it wants you to believe and which has really heinous policies in it, simply so that you can have a discussion. That's just, that's basically a film geek stuff. Like, like a goddamn film bus. That That's something for two guys who are sad and lonely and host a film podcast. So I, I guess, you know, I, I recommend those. If you're sad and pathetic film podcaster, you know, and and you can you can cheat someone to have a discussion with, then what's the birth of a nation? But uh, If not, you know, don't bother. Uh, Henrik, in this uh, podcast, you have the responsibility to give the recommendation or non-recommendation kind of a feeding all the different racial groups and age groups and all the kind of different minorities and majorities. For all of those together, would you recommend The Birth of a Nation collectively? So when in this podcast have do have we actually taken that responsi- responsibility? Because we have given these kind of lukewarm recommendations before here. We have. But then again, if well, you say here you recommend it or don't recommend it, it has to be. So is that which is going to apply for the rest of the world. So you have recommended it for sad and pathetic and lonely film podcasters. Uh, yeah, what a, yeah. What a... w- which is a fringe recommendation, which I've been allowed to give here on the podcast pre- before in previous <laughs> episodes. So are, are you... My bad. Okay. I- I'm still not following, but... Well, at least on my part, I'm trying to give here a recommendation that best suits for the entire human race. So... What about that part? Interhuman race. <laughs> I don't know why. I I can't just stay with fringe recommendation, but you know, fine. 
Uh, no, 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 it's it's too party. The rest of the human race, like, if you are not sad and pathetic film podcaster, you, I would say, you don't have the stamina and you don't have the interest to actually see through this film. And the fact is that you have way more better usage for your time to spend over three hours watching this film. Mm. Yeah, we have said already quite a lot of things about the technical side. We have already broken down the pieces, the, the supposed merits of D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation. We can see these filming techniques already taking place in previous works, some of them even made almost 15 years before The Birth of a Nation. So it doesn't have the firsts in technical merits. Uh, maybe some of those grandiose battles, as we discussed, might be some of the firsts here. And and so since it doesn't really have that, that technical firsts and it doesn't really have a kind of a it's like you said its heart is in in the wrong place altogether and it's three hours 11 minutes long black and white silent film so it's hard to believe that uh, i think it's not probably worth of your time because the only thing that would probably be worth of your time i think as you already said is that if you want to see the the kind of advancements in silver screen of how we depict race relations if you are interested in seeing Ku Klux Klan on your your screen in a, an old film then suppose this film is your calling but as mentioned the how it the how the whole story is put together I don't think it's very engaging definitely not for the first half of it of course there's also the fact that this is something that has been raised on the public eye because it has had a big budget it was one of the firsts at least or even the first of this magnitude in cinema history with such of a budget and such of a grandiose production you can see it for those merits but then again i think this film is kind of on a, on a loose footing for the aforementioned reasons so i would recommend this film outright no 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 okay so what's the next week's shouting match uh what was that film that you were suggesting <laughs> once again? Castorama, Boliorama, Bulimia. Bulimia sounds about right. Coriolanus, that's the one. Okay, yeah, well, that's going to be a rough shouting also. Is it? Wonderful. I suppose you're talking about the, the, the one that has been made in the 2000s, not some of that old stuff. What, the, the, are you now discriminating against the old stuff? Yeah, I'm just saying on the, on the, on the sense of, on the, in the sense of popularity, this newer edition is more known so so now we are chasing after a cheap popularity i'm really disappointed in you man like where's the prestige where's the passion is it is it really so that that one silent film was enough to break you when it came to the old stuff and now oh, now, no. now we are all, all about you know the bridge and bang new stuff that ha- that is popular no 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 once we get rid of your stuff then i'm sure we get Back to the underground, the gritty filmmaking that most of the people on this planet have not seen. Get rid of your your popular films. Well, don't 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 worry, don't worry. The, it it is the it, it really is the 2011 modern and popular film for your viewing pleasure. So you don't have to to suffer through anymore that old stuff. Awesome. You year bigger. And this is what I'm hearing from my co-host after I have suggested 
watching like the early Lumiere films in this podcast. I'm I'm still saying, you know. And by the way, I'm I'm the guy who just bought the, on Blu-ray Napoleon from 1927, so you can prepare yourself for that as well if you're willing. Well, I, it's it's funny to hear you make remarks about the underground, seeing how I actually proposed that we would have watched they they died the rubber rubber boots on okay. way too underground even for you. Yep. So, what is the next film then, Henrik? I'm guessing it's the Invisible Woman, 2013. <laughs> oh bummer. Are we not yet getting back to the golden age of porn? Like like I said, you know, for, for the next porn episode, we actually really do need to get a guest from the industry industry or something like that to make sure that 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 the next time we actually do the episode right okay fine with me contacting Raquel Liecki as we speak hey I'm game but yeah hey that was our first silent film in the podcast long time coming and uh, unlike some other podcasters have said about the birth of a nation hey don't uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater I think we just did throw the baby out with the bathwater in this case. Good riddance and see you next week with uh, Coriolanus. Until then it's gonna be a Shakespeare so it's gonna be lit as fuck. <laughs>